Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. Uh, we are so glad you are joining us for episode 80. Can't believe we made it all the way to the 80s. And to celebrate that, we're going to be talking about a movie from 1980 today, but we'll get to that in a little bit. As always, I'm your host, Terry Plecknett. Joining me are my co-hosts, Todd Plecknett, Zach Saltz. Zach, what are you drinking today? All right, I do not have a Sierra Nevada Pale. I have a strawberry blended margarita that uh, was prepared for me by my wife. And uh, yeah, this should be fun. Yeah. I'm getting in the summer spirit. Is, is, your, is your wife usually uh, liberal with the tequila? Quite a bit, yes. Especially for special occasions like this. <laughs> it's like uh, when we went to whatever what that that side of the road thing in Vegas where they like we at like two a.m. What was that place called? Duh. I'm not sure if I remember Sup anything you're talking about. There <laughs> <laughs> was these super strong margaritas. It was a. Uh, I don't know. Oh, it was it Margaritaville or yeah, something? Yeah, there you go. I was gonna say it was named after a damn song. <laughs> Uh, on on we were there on National Margarita Day or something, right? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. We got yeah. It was like buy one get one buy half one off get or one free or yeah, yeah. something. Yeah. The way I feel when my wife prepares drinks for me is like Kevin Spacey when he's at uh, his wife's um, company party in American Beauty and he says, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, there, cowboy, pour some more." <laughs> it's okay. I wouldn't remember me either. <laughs> Todd, what are you drinking? Uh, I have the beautiful Espelone Anasia, which I didn't even know they had, so I had to buy it, and it's even better and more tasty than the Reposado. It's just super drinkable and amazing, and I was drinking a margarita right before this, so it goes good. Very nice. Very nice. Well, I've got I've got a beer for you, and in honor of what we're going to be, going to be talking about, I wanted to go with something kind of like uh, like aquatic themed looking at you know what we're gonna be talking about so i have out of astoria oregon this is the buoy beer ipa there's even like a like a buoy on the can right there so uh yeah there you go there you go in honor of what we're gonna be doing so there you go beautiful i like it all right well uh we've got a lot to get to today we've got a couple featured movie reviews Mount Rushmore, a really fun uh, power ranking we have coming up, and quite an experience that we're going to have with trivia, it sounds like. So, let's not waste any more time, and let's uh, look a little bit at what we've been watching and do just a couple quick reviews there. Uh, Zach, I'm starting with you. What have you been watching? So, I watched the document, the 2019 documentary Knock Down the House, which was released on Netflix last year. Um, it looks at the 2018 midterm elections in the United States and four progressive uh, women uh, who uh, tried to unseat uh, their incumbent uh, representative or member of Congress. These women are Amy Valela, 
from Nevada, Corey Bush from Missouri, Paula Jean Swearington from West Virginia, and most notably, the one and only AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York. She was the only one of these women that actually succeeded in defeating uh, the incumbent. Spoiler alert, I guess. Um, this is a pretty interesting movie. Um, it got a little bit of criticism because it probably should have been about all four of these women. Really, it mostly focused on AOC. She's like 75% of the movie when really she only should have been 25% if we're trying to be equitable. But it's still a really compelling look at how you do a grassroots um, campaign from the ground up with volunteers and going to the streets and making flyers and stuff like that. And uh, I'm a huge AOC fan. This is a really cool documentary if you want to look a little bit more at her platforms. She's awesome. The other women are pretty awesome too, but you'll come away from this movie really having uh, the most um, attention on AOC. So yeah, good documentary. Three stars. Okay, I have not heard of that uh, documentary. Um, so I'm I'm assuming... I mean, is this thing, this thing is shot like real time or yes. was it all done retroactively or? They started shooting it, I believe in 2017, right at the beginning of all these four women running for Congress. So they had no idea. And if you remember, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez was a huge underdog. She had like a one in 100 shot of winning. She was going up against the fourth most powerful member, member of Congress. So it's pretty remarkable that they were able to follow her campaign um, from really the beginning. So it's a really cool inside look. So did did the other three? Uh, Maybe getting a little too deep in this, but did the other three actually get to the November ballot? Because I know no. AOC, her big victory was winning the primary. That's exactly it. Yeah, th- this is not about the general elections. These are all about the primaries. So these were all four. Pro- okay. These were all four progressive women, very much from the Bernie Sanders wing of the party, that were trying to unseat Democratic incumbents. I probably should have made that a little clear. It wasn't about general elections. These were generally fairly safe Democratic districts and, and seats. It's just that it was. A, it's about the splintering of the modern Democratic Party. You got the Bernie Sanders wing, and you got the Hillary Clinton wing. And this was a this is a documentary that that I think looks at at that Bernie Sanders wing and how difficult it is to really mount a challenge um, with the sort of mainstream establishment uh, base of the Democratic Party. But it's a really really interesting look. Sounds good. All right, I'm going to go next. I'm going to talk about my anniversary watch for the week. And uh, this week it was celebrating the 20th anniversary of a movie that I know you two are really big fans of, and that is Kenneth Lonergan's You Can Count on Me. Uh, this was, had two Oscar nominations in 2000, one for Best Actress for Laura Linney and one for Original Screenplay for Kenneth Lonergan. Um, I really enjoyed this movie. It was um, real, really surprising. I mean, looking at... I, I didn't watch a trailer for anything before. I just kind of saw a basic you know, snippet synopsis on IMDb and looking at the poster... It felt very Manchester by the Sea, and it's Kenneth Lonergan, so I'm like, oh, it's gonna be an, it's gonna be kind of similar to Manchester by the Sea, but it's not. It's, it's very slice of life. It's really funny at times. Um, Laura Linney has an amazing character, and the dynamic between her and Mark Ruffalo is awesome. Mark Ruffalo gives a performance that, I mean, really kind of established Mark Ruffalo as who he is now. Um, I thought uh, Matthew Broderick kind of felt like this is what Ferris Bueller grew up to be. <laughs> um, and we'll, I think we'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But, uh, yeah, uh, great performances. I mean, this is like borderline three and a half, four stars. I think I'm leaning four stars right now. Um, but just really, really good movie. It felt so real, and every character in there just felt real. And nothing felt uh, contrived or glossed over or anything like that. I, I really liked it. So, yeah, four stars I'm going with right now. 
Awesome. It is a truly great movie. It's my number one of 2000. Even above Almost Famous, which we named our podcast after. So it's got to be good. That is impressive. That is impressive. Speaking of that, Todd's watching it while we record. What scene are we on, Todd? Uh, well, William is talking to Penny outside the the uh, concert, the first one. Oh, okay, where he's learning what a Band-Aid is? Yeah. Well, no, nice. not outside the building, outside the actual concert. Like, uh, afterwards. Oh. What's your real gotcha. name? Gotcha. I'll never tell. Does anyone remember <laughs> Laughter. <laughs> yeah okay well i watched uh well I, I mean i also go with the newest thing i watched which was the king of staten island which is written and directed by judd apatow and it is one of his very best movies it, it's about uh well pete davidson wrote and stars in it semi-autobiographical about uh, a guy whose dad died in a fire because he's a fireman and it's about him like sort of struggling his way through life and it is it's it's pretty dark in its humor but it's also really interesting and really dramatic and it it does have a lot of funny moments and bill burr just is a monster in his supporting role like i i mean in my opinion he should be nominated for best supporting actor at the oscars this year uh I, I told Zach that Pete Davidson is like a hybrid of Johnny Knoxville and Sean Penn because he, he just has this expression wow. in his face. It's so interesting to watch. And I, I don't know. I, I love the movie. It's a, I mean, it's pushing four stars. I, I mean, I'm giving it three and a half right now, but I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up in my top ten of the year. A mix between Johnny Knoxville and, and Sean, Sean Penn. Penn. I think like Fast Times, Sean Penn? No, um, no like more like... 19 like early 90s late 80s champagne like okay. bad boys kind of era champagne i mean i told you all that right. zach i don't know why you're acting like i was surprised <laughs> you must not remember i don't <clears throat> sorry but uh i i dig it all right well, let's get into our featured reviews. Uh, we have two of them for you. One of them is going to be a retro review. One of them is going to be uh, a little-known movie that uh, just came out this weekend. Uh, and we're going to start with our retro review. Like I said, it's the 80th pod episode of the podcast. And so we're going to talk about a film from 1980 celebrating its 40th anniversary. And a film that surprisingly none of us had seen yet. And that is Popeye. Uh, starring Robin Williams and Shelley Duvall, uh, directed by Robert Altman. I was kind of surprised, actually, to see that this was a Robert Altman film in the opening credits. Um, and it, it follows the the iconic Popeye the Sailor Man uh, and, uh, and his girl Olive Oil. Um, it's, uh, it's a musical, which I didn't quite realize until they started singing in the opening scene. Um, I think uh, Robin Williams gives one of the more unique performances in his career here because he is so always larger than life and he is here but it's like a subdued larger than life because he's kind of held to the like inside the box of what Popeye is um so it's like it's Robin Williams being Robin Williams but also 
kind of restrained at the same time. I don't know. It, it was it was kind of bizarre to to uh, to watch at times, and he was a little hard to hear hear and understand at times. But that's just him doing his Popeye voice. Um, I enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. Um, it's uh, kind of borderline two and a half, three stars. I'm going three stars simply because it's a movie I could see myself turning back on and just watching for fun at some point. Um, it, uh, it, it's it got some charm to it. Uh, Shelley Duvall, I think, kind of steals the show as olive oil. I think she's awesome and perfect for that role. Um, her song about, um, about Bluto about her trying to figure out why she's marrying him what I thought was hilarious and awesome but no uh, I'm going I'm going three star movie it was a, it was a fun watch uh, entertaining um, again it's fun to see early Robin Williams so three stars for me uh, let's go to uh, Todd next yeah I mean I echo a lot of what you said like I mean there's like a 10% chance that I watched this at some point when I was a kid because a lot of the set pieces like looked eerily familiar I was getting like deja vu but I, I don't really know I've definitely seen scenes of it yeah yeah but I mean uh, Altman brings this like level of joy and nostalgia to the movie he doesn't make it like overly childish and he doesn't try to make it sophisticated he just tries to make it like an adaptation of the comic which I think it might be like the first live action comic like strip adaptation I, I can't i don't can't think of another one but but i mean i thought it looked really great i, I was surprised it didn't get any like below the line oscar nominations considering dick tracy got like a ton of love like just a decade later uh i like shelly duvall a lot in this like uh it's interesting that the same year she had one of the worst performances of all time but she's really great in this and then, like, Ray Walston, who plays Poop Deck Pappy, like, uh, it was, he plays Mr. Hand in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, that's all I kept thinking. And also Barbara from Police Academy, I didn't even know he was going to be in this. And the guy... It took me a while to recognize him. <laughs> and, like, the the dad and Rachel getting married was in there, and Linda Hunt. I, I was It was a really interesting cast, and, I mean, I guess that's Robert Altman, but uh, it's... It's interesting that he would go to a movie like this after, you know, McCabe and Mrs. Miller and Nashville and Three Women, and then he does this. It's it's just, like, this goofy musical comedy. And I, I don't know, I kind of dug it, too. I, I'm, Robin Williams is, like, totally almost method in this. Like, you can't understand what he's saying because he got a pipe in his mouth. I don't know if it was, like, he's, like, a ventriloquist or something because there's no way you should ever be able to hear because his mouth hardly opened at all. But, it, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I had fun. It's, a uh, it, it definitely is shoving the 1970s behind for Robert Altman and uh, and starting a new chapter, and I, I, I dug it, too. I, I give it three stars as well. All right. We haven't had a thrice-approved movie in a while, Zach. Is this going to be our first one? Uh, yes. I Yeah! <laughs> I really enjoyed this movie. Um, I have to say, Robert Altman has become one of my favorite filmmakers. I used to think he was kind of overrated, but I... I what I like about him is that I can't think of another director who so shunned the studio system and yet like has so much notoriety. And um, it, it, I think it helps your appreciation of this movie to know a little bit more about Robert Altman. I read um, an oral biography of Robert Altman a couple months ago, and um, it goes into quite a bit of detail about the shoot on uh, of uh, Popeye. Robert Altman loved to shoot films outside of Hollywood because he hated studio interference. 
And um, so much so that on some of his films, he actually got into like physical altercations with studio people that would try to, over, to try to dictate what the story should be. Robert Altman hated scripts. I mean, he he would take the script and deliberately not follow it. He would get mad at uh, at people that would you know try to convince him to follow what it had, had been written. So you have Robert Altman as the one force, and then you have Robert Evans, the 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 uh, studio head at Paramount in 1980. You know, this other kind of larger than life figure. Um, it's kind of amazing that this movie ever got made in the first place. It was made in Malta. Um, and uh, at the time, a lot of people praised it for like its lavish set pieces. And that's sort of a quaint thing. I mean, if this movie was made today, it would be so CGI. But like at the time, you know, Ebert gave this movie three and a half stars. I went back to his review and he, he just lavishes praise on this set piece that does look really cool. I mean, it kind of looks like you're in some kind of theme park at Disney World or something. It looks like you're like walking through these authentic like wooden set pieces. It's pretty cool. Um, yeah, uh, this was Robin Williams' debut. I mean, he's really awesome in the movie. I can't really understand what he's saying. Some of the dogs dialogue in this movie is really hard like Todd was saying it's hard to follow um and this movie has such a strange kind of meandering pace it feels like at times there's no story like Popeye comes to um this sea uh, to Sea Haven in search of his long lost father but then the movie forgets about that for about an hour and a half and then it goes into these other elements with these characters that just kind of do strange things there's weird people who do backflips in the background there's pictures that fall on the floor randomly Olive Oil can't walk for some reason and then she's always saying "Woo!" which <laughs> I think is like something out of the comic. I'm not really sure. Um, this, what it all adds up to is how wonderful filmmaking was in the 70s. I mean that that this is a this is a movie that totally is idiosyncratic and. and <coughs> eccentric and if it was made today it would just get the whole mcu bullshit michael bay treatment of wanting to make it a franchise and it would be full of cgi but this movie is like very idiosyncratic you can't quite put put your your finger on it i can't say it's it was like a totally enjoyable movie to watch because it was kind of like i said meandering and painful to watch at times but i think that adds to its charm um i really love todd's comparison to dick tracy i I could feel the dick tracy vibe and that what that also makes me think that this movie was ahead of its time um i feel like that sort of eccentricity is now beloved in movies i think it also has like built up tim burton's career this movie was just like 10 years too early i think if this movie is released in the 90s or 2000s it has a niche audience that really loves it instead it kind of got trashed by disney and it wasn't actually a box office flop but um it was just it was ahead of its time like a lot of altman's films and uh yeah it's thrice approved it's it's a good movie it was it was it was fun solid fun that's like our first thrice approved movie in at, at least since since quarantine started. At least. Is it really? I think so. Todd, was it weird watching this movie knowing like Shelley Duvall's career in the 70s, especially with Altman? Like she you know, she was in Three Women, she was in Thieves Like Us, she was in Nashville, and Olive Oil is kind of like her best role maybe. I don't know if it's a best performance, but it's like a perfect role for her. Yeah, yeah, she she slides into that role perfectly. And I, I, yeah, it's an interesting like turning point in her career too, because I mean, it really was a, a like super potential from this, and then like super end of her career with The Shining, and it really never recovered from that. <laughs> and it also starts the 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 downslide of Altman's career in the '80s, which is just I mean terrible. Like he moved to Paris, and he was completely shunned by the film industry basically until he made The Player in 1992, but. I feel like this movie is unfairly shit on. It's it's actually pretty entertaining. 
I don't know how shit on it actually is, though. I mean, the reviews actually looked pretty decent for the time, and I, I which I was kind of surprised. I thought this was sort of like a like a maligned movie from the get go. Well, we all liked it, which is good. Zach, you're giving it three stars. I'm giving it three stars. All right, that's three stars across the board. Thrice approved movie. It is streaming right now on Prime, so uh, if you've got Prime, you can watch it now. I would not want to. Uh, I would not want to watch it on repeat for like twelve hours. I feel like that could almost be like torture. That that would be like maybe that scene in Adam's Family Values when Wednesday and Pugsley are at the summer camp and they go into isolation chamber and have to watch the Disney movies. If I had to watch this movie over and over again, I might uh, go crazy. There were a little bit of Adam's Family vibes in this. As well as the lighthouse too. At the same time, it's kind of weird. <laughs> I kind of see it. But but see, I could I I could also see it being a movie that you just turn on for for like background noise. Like if you're just flipping through the channels, oh Popeye's on. I, I could have this on while I do other stuff. And obviously, Paul Thomas Anderson loves this movie because he used uh, the "He Needs Me" song by Shelley Duvall uh, prominently in Punch Drunk Love, which also is sort of an eerily similar movie in some ways. All right. Well, let's uh, let's switch gears now from our retro review to our uh, to our recent review uh, of a movie that just came out uh, this weekend on Netflix. And uh, Todd, you're starting us off first. We are talking about Olivier Assayas's Wasp Network. Why did it affect huh? In Cuba, everything is short. Electricity, food. Necesitamos pilotos como tú. Adentro de la organización hemos formado un grupo de élite en la red VIP. Again, just uh, debuted on Netflix on Friday. Todd, tell us all about it and what you thought. Uh, it is the true story set in uh, the early 90s-ish. Uh, if it centers on anybody, it's this guy, Rene Gonzalez, played by Edgar Ramirez, who is a Cuban-American who defects from Cuba to Florida to join this faction of spies who are attempting to infiltrate this uh, group of anti-Castro terrorist groups uh, and uh, and send the information back to the Cuban government, uh, basically trying to be like a, the ultimate patriot for the communist regime in Cuba. Uh, he abandons his wife and child, uh, trying to maintain his... Uh, cover basically and uh accomplishes mission the other people in the group are played by uh wagner mora of narcos fame and gael garcia bernal and among others he's sort of the ringleader and ana de armas and penelope cruz play the wives of a couple of them there's also the guy from painting pain and glory is in there basically the entire cast is these spanish-speaking actors who are all from different countries like we have mexico spain brazil venezuela cuba and argentina represented but the director is from france i i just thought that was kind of interesting he didn't use like multiple people from like spain or multiple from mexico i don't know i, I thought that was kind of weird uh but the, the movie is handled in interesting fashion i'm not the biggest asias fan but he certainly has his unique style the, the movie kind of feels like mission impossible at times but it also is like a john le Carre novel adaptation like i kept thinking it reminded me of the night manager but it's also kind of feels like carlos which was like a five-hour movie by uh asias uh, which ended up premiering on tv as a miniseries on the sundance channel which is what i feel like this movie should have been because it's only like two hours, a little over two hours long, but it, there's so much, so many characters we're supposed to feel for, and so much we need to digest that it, it's hard to do it in just that little amount of time. It would have been an amazing miniseries. Instead, we get this like kind of awkward title to a movie and a really uneven experience. 
it joins that group of movies that's like it feels like a masterpiece when you're watching it but it really is kind of a mess the the like the the founder of that group for me is uh like we own the night like it's in that that vein of like this feels like it should be great but it's kind of not uh the cast is really fun to watch though on Darmus, i think is the mvp she is uh amazing in this movie uh, in her supporting part uh she makes my current sporting actress lineup uh, it, it gives this historical context by giving these archival footage shots and uh, these interviews with Clinton and with Castro, which is interesting. And I, I didn't even know like making a movie from the perspective of Cuba was go- actually going to be a, uh, like a possibility. So it's it's a mixed bag for sure, and it's not quite worth a recommendation, even though it does move at a really brisk pace. But uh, it's a two and a half star movie. Uh, I'm fine with it. it. It's a solid Netflix movie, and I'm, uh, I mean, it, it is worth seeking out if you uh, if you like that kind of espionage thriller. All right, all right, Zach, what did you think? Yeah, I'm on. I, I'm on. I agree <clears throat> with Todd virtually almost everything he said. Um, in fact, I feel like uh, watching this movie when it premiered. I think it premiered at the Cannes Film Festival or a film festival. Um, I feel like a lot of audiences would have a similar reaction to this movie, um, which is basically a lot of what Todd said. It's an ambitious movie that attempts to put the stories of many different people uh, who were actually real um, Cubans who who defected to the United States in the early 90s. And it tries to put it into this um, really consolidated format, which I think does not fit um, the gravity of their stories. This should have been a miniseries. Um, as a result, uh, there were times in this movie that uh, the storytelling was very convoluted and was hard to follow uh, what the characters were exactly doing. Um, I mean, for example, even the, the, the main character uh, played by Edgar Ramirez, I, at times I wasn't sure um, whether he was truly defecting from Cuba or whether he was essentially a spy working for Castro. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, it, it's, it's a compelling uh, sto- uh, character study in a sense because you want to know, you, you understand why this guy maybe feels um, betrayed a little bit once he works on behalf of the United States or infiltrates the United States spy ring. Again, I'm not really sure what he does in this movie. There's another scene where randomly he's watering some plants like he's a gardener that like it's not explained at all. Um, but uh, that being said i mean todd's right too it does move at a brisk pace and it's it's a fascinating look at um the sort of complexities of leaving uh castro cuba i feel like this movie is is a little bit more sympathetic to Castro than it is the United States in the sense that these characters see the atrocities that the American agents are um, undertaking, and specifically this um, this uh, real life incident in Havana, in 1997, where this guy, this contracted, uh, uh, basically, um, you know, terrorist was, uh, you know, hired by the United States to you know, try to uh, under undercut any sort of economic progress that was being achieved by Cuba. It's a confusing story. I don't think Ana de Armas or Wagner Mora really help. I feel like their characters sort of make the story even more confusing. I feel like if it had just focused on the Edgar Ramirez and Penelope Cruz characters, uh, it might have been a little bit more straightforward and also emotionally compelling. So I'm in almost total agreement with, with Todd on this one. This is a two and a half star movie that feels like it could have been a four star movie. There are times when it feels like it actually reminded me a little bit of Munich, the Steven Spielberg movie, in the sense that you, these characters kind of feel moral obligations, but the movie's really unfocused, and, and I think it, had it been just a little bit more intimate uh, at looking at one or two of the characters more in depth, it w- maybe would have had a lot more uh, emotional resonance. All right, 
Alright, I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying. Um, I liked it a little more. I'm giving it three stars. Uh, simply because um, I, I was I was fascinated by, by just the historical context of this story. Kind of like what Todd said, just the idea of telling a story from Cuba's point of view uh, during this time was I thought was fascinating. This was a you know a moment in history that I did not know happened, and so I I was I was fascinated watching it, thinking that you know half the time I'm thinking I'm watching a documentary almost because of how how it's telling telling history here and it's educating on what happened during that time and and looking at that other side of things. Um, but a lot of what you guys said too is uh, is true. The the story jumped around a lot. Um, it w- it was and that made it kind of hard to follow. I did really like how it played off the fact that they were spies as like this twist halfway through. Um, that they don't that they keep that part just completely separate, and you just hear have the story of these guys who come to Miami and they're m- building this new life for themselves, and then all of a sudden it, it flips. And I, I thought that was really effective. Um, but yeah, I, I, I enjoyed learning about uh, that moment in history uh, enough to, to bump it up to a three star for me. But I, I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying. Yeah, it, it, it's tough because it's like, it, you know, kind of goes back to what Todd's saying. Like, there is potential greatness in this movie. I have not seen Carlos, but I think that's maybe, that's probably an, an apt comparison. Like, this is, it's a compelling character study, but because there's so many moving pieces, and I think the movie wants to be really smart, I think the movie, uh, try, like you said, it does that kind of... Um, 180 midway through which i feel like is totally unnecessary i mean for me when i saw that i was just more confused it it wasn't like a a shocking twist or anything like that it was just a filmmaker trying to put some sort of lavish you know flaunting uh you know something in the story to make it more intriguing it to me was just unnecessary i wanted to know more about these characters and what what they were thinking because we didn't get enough time with them to really know Yeah, and then when it does that flip, it has that random montage with narration in it, and it was almost like, okay, if this was Samuel Jackson's voice, it would feel like a Tarantino movie at this point. Mm. Uh, just how, just of how much it takes you out of what was going on in the moment. But I thought it was effective. So, All right. I guess well, in that case, the, yeah. the closest relative would be like the concert gardener or something like that. I feel like that had a lot of the same issues that this did, but it also, similar, did feel like a great movie at times. And and I, I'd probably agree with you there as well because Constant Gardener I remember watching and thinking it was a good movie, and that's really all I remember about the Constant Gardener is watching it and thinking it was a good movie. I remember nothing about what it was about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it... and 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 I could see Todd, you made that point. I could see this being one of those movies. Go ahead, Zach. I was just gonna say if if a movie's gonna make you do mental agility, I mean that's fine. You know we all love Christopher Nolan movies. That's great. We like John like Carre for that reason too. But if you don't have an investment in the characters, then it's almost like not worth it. So for example, you know this this uh, revelation that comes midway through about the Edgar Ramirez character, um, we just don't know about him to really feel like that's a huge twist. Really, um, I mean I didn't care. I just thought it was kind of the movie you know flaunting some sort of uh screenplay gimmick rather than um a real uh twist about the character's motivations all right well we're not going to get two thrice approved movies out of this but we did get one this one got a couple two and a half stars a three and a uh, three star 
However, we're all kind of in the same same area. This one is available on Netflix, pretty easy to find. Um, but it looks like not many people have seen it yet. Right now on uh, on IMDb, it has about fifteen hundred ratings. So uh, so go check this one out uh, if it sounds interesting. If you're if you're a history buff and want to hear some uh, some untold stories of history, uh, this is one of those uh, that you could find. All right. Let's move on out of our movie reviews and into our Mount Rushmore for the week. Okay, so we've been doing uh, some Mount Rushmores looking at um, looking at the Oscars of the last decade. And we've been doing categories, but this time we're going to shift that a little bit. Uh, especially with the Academy coming out with some new, um, some new guidelines, some new regulations, some new rules uh, moving forward in the Oscars that... This year will be the last year that uh, the nominees for Best Picture will be somewhere between 5 and 10, which has turned out to be either 8 or 9. And starting in 2021, it will be a solid 10 again. Now this happened, what was it, 2009, 2010, were the only two years that they had 10, and then they went to this sliding scale. And, um, and so... From 2011 to 2020, this will be the last year they do it, we've had somewhere between 5 and 10. And so what we're looking at here is we are looking at if the rule had been 10 nominees for the last decade, what is the Mount Rushmore of films that coulda, shoulda, woulda been nominated for Best Picture and filled in those last one or two slots uh, in the best picture lineup, I mean, that, having that label of best picture nominee is—I mean, that's a—that's a trademark. That is something that is a calling card for the films that get that. Um, I know for me, I, I keep a movie collection of of DVDs and Blu-rays of best picture nominees. If it makes that list, it's it it, it tells you it's important. It makes it more uh, more readily seen. So, which movies should have been on that list if we had ten? but got missed out. What what are what is the Mount Rushmore here? Zach, I'm going to you first to put forth your submission. Okay, so this was sort of an interesting challenge because on the one hand, yeah, you know, I want to say like Leave No Trace should have been nominated for Best Picture in 2018. However, was that movie really marketed as an Oscar movie? I mean, it it come out earlier in the year and it was certainly more of an independent movie. So, on the one hand, you want you can be selfish with your pick, but you also have to think in in the context of what the Academy would have realistically nominated. So, I went with a movie that I think but we can pretty much all pretty much clearly agree that it would have gotten a Best Picture nomination today. And that's a movie that got a lot of critical attention when it came out in 2013. And that is Fruitvale Station. I think Fruitvale Station absolutely would have been a Best Picture nominee if it had come out today, if we're expanding the list to 10 nominated films. I mean, that year, 12 Years a Slave did win Best Picture. Maybe this, you know, this was certainly pre-2016 Oscar reform. So maybe 12 Years a Slave was the token African-American film that, that the Academy was going to nominate. But in terms of its relevance to society, in terms of um, its direction, its acting, um, and just the critical acclaim of it, and the fact that the studio mostly did get behind it, um, it's a little shocking that it wasn't nominated for Best Picture. And it, I think, certainly would be nominated for Best Picture today. It's interesting that you took it that way because i i agree with you that i think like if it was today it, it could have been however it's also a movie that didn't get any nominations and so like I, I i looked at it as 
you know, what would have been the best films that finished like ninth or tenth that in those years. Um, I don't think Fruitvale Station would have been. However, the way you explained it, yes, if it had come out today, I think it would have had a very legit shot at being that uh, Best Picture nominee. Well, I mean, with those movies like that, that get the massive love at like the Spirit Awards and stuff. Like, we don't know where those are actually finishing in the overall Oscar landscape. They could have been tenth through fifteen somewhere. Well, let, let's just remind you, you know, Fruitvale Station uh, was produced by the Weinsteins. It was uh, the Grand Jury Prize winner at the Cannes Film Festival, and, or excuse me, at the Sundance Film Festival, and it was screened at the Cannes Film Festival. Like, it had a lot of critical attention. It just was the unfortunate um, consequence of being released in 2013 rather than 2020. But that makes it ahead of its time, much like Popeye. It's definitely Kugler's best movie, too. All right. I'm going to go next. Uh, so I went through and just looked at the the Oscar lineups and kind of what else had been nominated that year and had, like, the, the track record of potentially being a Best Picture nominee. I came up with about 12 films uh, on that list, and so that's where I started my look at this. Um, over the last nine years... Uh, like I said, I keep a collection of the Best Picture nominees on, on DVD and Blu-ray. Um, and recently, the, those are some of the only films I've been buying on DVD and Blu-ray as it gets as we've been going along. But there have been a couple films that I got on, uh, on Blu-ray simply because I felt like they should have been Best Picture nominees. And they were so close to being Best Picture nominees. And, and there's two main ones, and I'm going to go with one of those. And the one I'm going to go with is Foxcatcher from 2014. Um, this movie had everything going for it to be the the uh, the the 10th Best Picture nominee or the 9th. I don't even remember how many came out that year. But it had uh, a Best Actor nomination. It had a Best Supporting Actor nomination. It is the first film... Uh, since the the list got expanded from five to bigger than five to get a Best Director nomination without a Best Picture nomination. It only, has only happened twice since that's happened. And once was Bennett Miller for Foxcatcher. Not only that, but this is Bennett Miller's third movie and his first two movies were both nominated for Best Picture. It had everything going for it, but somehow it got left off. And it is a brilliant just crazy movie looking at um at john dupont and this fox catcher wrestling program um one of the craziest steve carell performances um the best channing tatum has ever been and and definitely an outside the box mark ruffalo performance as well so um fox catcher i think definitely needs to be up there if we're talking about what should have been nominated and what could have gotten into that lineup yeah it's definitely one of the top ones on my list is going. All right. Well, Todd, what are you going with? Uh, well, I mean, I have a few that I want to say. Uh, I guess I'll go with one that's sort of like a hybrid between the way you guys took it. The um, one that probably was really close and absolutely would be probably nominated today, I guess, which is OJ Made in America. Because when that came out, I don't know anybody that didn't watch it, and I don't know anybody that didn't hail it as the best documentary of the year maybe of the decade and uh and it, it is a movie about all the things all the issues in america that are going on right now and at the time it is 
an epic documentary, and if there's ever a documentary that was going to be nominated for Best Picture, it'd be something like O.J. Made in America. They had to change the rules because it was probably too close to getting nominated for Best Picture. So, Ezra Edelman's O.J. Made in America is my, is, is my submission here. That's, that's an interesting one. You're right. No, I, everybody loved it that saw it, but I never even considered it as potentially a, a Best Picture nominee. I always felt like it won Best Documentary, but it was kind of a reluctant win of, like... I mean, this is a miniseries, but I guess technically it followed the rules to get in, so we should probably let it win. Um, well, yeah, but I it, mean... It, it, it changed the rules for for what makes a documentary at the Oscars. Yeah, yeah, that's what, that's what I mean. It's I mean, when something shakes up the Oscars that much, I mean, that's I mean, it'd be, it's like The Dark Knight, I guess, in that way. It's like they had to change the rules because of Dark Knight was uh was so close but didn't get in and there's never been a documentary nominated for best picture yeah so that 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 would have been an interesting one to get in but i think that's part of why they're expanding the lineup too and and making it a true 10 is so that some of these films could get in that normally wouldn't wouldn't all right so we've got this is going not at all the way i thought it would so we've got three films here we've got fox catcher fruitvale station oj made in america um, my submission was the only one that was on my list of 12 that I came up with. <laughs> so what are we going to go with? I'll, I'll, I'll tell you right now, the, the other one that I bought, um, as a honorary best picture nominee that should have gotten in there if there were 10 is Girl with the Dragon Tattoo from 2011. Yeah, that, that was on my list as well. And one best editing, I mean, still it's kind of weird it didn't get nominated for best picture. Yeah. Especially my num- coming off of the social network. <laughs> my number two was uh, the master. That's on my list as well. Yeah, that def- I mean three three acting <clears throat> nominations. That's got to be. That's got to give it a a good shot at getting that tenth spot. Yeah, that was on my short list here as well. I I the other ones I had were a separation. Because, I mean, it has screenplay nomination and foreign film, pretty much unanimous win. Like, I don't know how that gets in in, like, a something, or doesn't get in in something like a more does, but, uh, you know, like, I don't know. And Carol, I also thought of. Straight out of Compton, I feel like probably would get nominated now. And I, it still is kind of weird how much money it made and then gets the random screenplay nomination, which might have been, like, the weakest part of the movie. That, that I feel like, would be almost a shoe-in for uh, one of the eight, nine, ten slots now. And, uh, and Uncut Gems, just because... And I, I feel like it probably could have gotten it only a, a Best Picture nomination, nothing else. So the other ones that were on my list, uh, The Master, Blue Jasmine, uh, Before Midnight, Carol, Steve Jobs, Straight Outta Compton, I, Tanya, Can You Ever Forgive Me, The Two Popes, and Bombshell. Bombshell's a good one. But my, my, top, my top next one is Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Because that was just an awesome movie, too. Yeah. What do you think, Zach? Zach? I didn't really have a whole list. Um, The Danish Girl wasn't nominated for Best Picture. That's kind of interesting. Um, But uh, Inside Out wasn't nominated either. Correct. Those would be two that I would think of. Yeah, Inside Out's an interesting one. Yeah. uh, the two years that you had the the set ten, you had up nominated and then Toy Story four, and since then no animated films have been nominated, which I think is interesting. 
um, that uh, maybe that that tenth spot is is uh, set aside for the Pixar film. So what are we gonna go with? My votes girl with the dragon tattoo. What about yeah. you guys? Oh, I also thought if Beale Street could talk, I thought that was kind of a shocker to get nominated as well. Yeah. Well, it ended up getting very little too. What it, I mean, it got. It won Sporting what? Actress, nominated for screenplay and score. Yeah. I mean, it's it's something. But I I, I would say Girl with the Dragon Tattoo as well. That was the first one I wrote down. Zach, you good with that? Um. Yeah. I mean. I don't know. It it didn't... I mean, most people didn't think it was as good as The Social Network. Most people didn't think it was as good as the original. And, I mean, it wasn't like a huge, uplifting, um, sort of Hollywood-style movie. You could see why the Academy kind of avoided it to some degree. But it is a really good movie. And it, it was shocking that it didn't get a nomination. There are a lot of movies that could make this list. I remember in 2011, Todd Todd was giving me crap because it was the one film on my top ten that wasn't a, an uplifting, inspiring story. Yeah, I remember from the trailer, it was the <laughs> feel-bad movie of Christmas. One of the best trailers of the 2010s as well. That could be another. Yes. Yeah, not Rushmore. That's definitely <clears throat> All right, so are we going to go with it or are we going to try and find something else? No, I like it. It's good. Let's go with it. All right, so... We have Fruitvale Station, Foxcatcher, OJ Made in America, and The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo as the the Mount Rushmore of films that could have been, should have been, would have been nominated for Best Picture if they had just left the rules alone and kept us at 10 for the last decade. How about movies that shouldn't have been nominated for Best Picture or, or wouldn't be today? Oh, that that's now that's a good one too. That was actually an idea I had for a power ranking. We may do it at some point. We'll uh, we may have to get back to that. Can anyone speaking say of that, Philomena? Oh, sorry. Yeah, <laughs> it's time for power <laughs> rankings. <laughs> you can't top that. Yeah, that's the movie about the horse. I'm gonna pull an audible at the last minute here. That's because I haven't seen it. Power rankings. Not including Fargo. Can't choose Fargo ever again. <laughs> So let's get into let's get into our power rankings now. Uh, we are doing an all decade power rankings list that was chosen by Todd. So Todd, tell us what we're doing. Uh, so I chose something to get us a little bit out of our comfort zone. We're not doing like the ultimate, you know. We're not just doing like Tarantino lists and like lists of whatever else like guy stuff. We're doing the best love stories of the 2010s. So. Uh, we can, you could take that any way you want. You could say romantic comedies. You could say like uh, dramas that like ripped your heart out, or like just movies that had a love story in them. It doesn't matter. Just we're doing something a little uh, a little off uh, off the board here. So I'm I'm interested to see how many different directions we take this because I could see it being a lot of them. Yeah, there are a lot of yeah. different ways that you could interpret love story. And uh, yeah, I'm curious to see how how this goes as well. But uh, but yeah, I'm excited. I I think uh, this was one where I I came up with a good solid top five, but after I did, I didn't really like any of them as my number one. So uh, I, I I don't know what that says about me, but that's that was what I had. I'm going first. My uh, number five uh, on my list is uh, the film that almost won Best Picture in 2016. It's La La Land. Um, I, I looked at it as, you know, there's different like categories of, of love story. And this is, I mean, there are a few things in Hollywood history that tell a love story better than a 
great musical. And, and this was such a great throwback to so many of those great classic musicals. Um, and then you add in the fact that you have two incredibly dynamic leads that were two of the great, like, actors of the last decade in Ryan Gosling and Emma Stone. Um, throw in Damien Chazelle, possibly the breakout director of the decade. Uh, and the story is great as you see kind of full cycle this this story of uh this love story between the two of them and uh not only love story between the two of them but also the love story of them with uh with uh music as well and having that all tied into it so uh i love this movie number five la la land i could have seen that coming yeah yeah probably did all right todd you're next number four no no not number four number five uh, yeah, my number five comes from 2017. It is the love story of Reynolds, Woodcock, and Alma in Phantom Thread. Uh, Reynolds is a dressmaker who go, kind of goes from woman to woman until he meets his waitress, who kind of is his match in a way. Like, he's got this, like, closely guarded life, and she sort of, like, breaks that all down. You, you sort of see everything he's set in his ways, and it, uh, it kind of just all kind of dissipates because he ends up being just, like, struggling in love with this girl and um yeah it, just seeing his safe life just uh get kind of unraveled by this like kinky love thing he has with alma is like something to behold and it's it's not the most romantic movie necessarily but it is hard not to get swept away in it it's like this hitchcockian thriller that's also a really just ravishing love story and i, I love it paul thomas anderson's phantom threat my number five could have seen that one coming. Yeah, I was never a fan <laughs> of that one. And yes, we could see that one coming as well. But is the is the is the love story between Reynolds Woodcock and Vicky Creeps, or is it between Reynolds Woodcock and his sister? That's the real question. Very incestuous vibe there. Yeah, that, that's. Or that's is it between call. Reynolds Woodcock and his work? I Ooh, mean. that is some deep interpretation there. Or yeah, the mushroom. I mean, is Reynolds Woodcock and mushrooms, <laughs> and poison, or breakfast. Poison, poisonous mushrooms. Yeah. All right, Zach, number five. Okay, I decided to do something different. I went with um, best platonic love stories, just to make things a little bit different. I think I think every great movie could be called a love story. So that is such a broad moniker that um, I decided to make it about non-romantic love, about love between two people that do not have a sexual uh, attraction or chemistry. So um, although maybe it's a little ambiguous with my number five, uh, my number five film is a movie that Adam put on his top 25 list, and I kind of respect him for it. Like, it was sort of a great pick. It is Ingrid Goes West. And... The romance or the love story in that movie is it, between Aubrey Plaza, who plays Ingrid, and the Elizabeth Olsen character, whose name is Taylor. And she is uh, the Elizabeth Olsen character is an influencer on Instagram, and Aubrey Plaza basically develops this like crazy obsessive girl crush on her, and she wants to basically inhabit her world and also be an influencer and live this like very rich, wealthy uh, LA lifestyle. 
And, um, I mean, this is, like, sort of the perfect 2010s movie, which is why I almost want to put it on my top 25 list, too, because if, if I was to show Aliens one movie that represented the 2010s in America, it would probably be Ingrid Goes West. The love story between these two characters is just so funny. Like, she's... In, uh, Aubrey Plaza is so great at playing weird characters. Like, um, she's basically playing sort of a twisted version of herself, and she's so in love with Elizabeth Olsen in this movie. She goes to such extreme lengths to get her attention, and it's so obsessive, but, like, in a really sort of charming way and uh, the movie just also has some great supporting performances including O'Shea Jackson and Wyatt Russell and uh, it's just it's just a really funny movie that is in, in sort of the classical sense a love story between um, someone who is obsessed by another person I mean that's love is it not it's a per- perverse kind of love but it's also kind of sweet so you pretty much it. didn't do the it. list at all Hey, it's it's a platonic love. Okay, you said you could take this list in any direction that you wanted to. That is a platonic relationship, although maybe Aubrey Plaza wouldn't want it that way. But um, it's still love. Love is love. All right, all right. Uh, number four on my list is uh, kind of a classic love story. So classic that it's the fourth time that this story has been told. It is 2018's A Star Is Born. Uh, Bradley Cooper, Lady Gaga, bringing to life this story, like I said, that's been told three other times in film. Uh, But this one really, really hit a home run. Uh, Their two characters are really dynamic. Um, Their relationship is electric. The chemistry is amazing there. And you really see the... And there's a reason why they keep telling the story over and over again. Because it's it's such a sweet, innocent love to start. But then you see how how love affects you and how it can, um, how you know love is tested by different things that happen in life, and uh, and what you're willing to sacrifice for that love. So um, it Bradley Cooper wrote this, he directed it, he starred in it. Um, he gives one of his best performances. Lady Gaga shows that she is a movie star, not just a pop star. Uh, so yeah, number four, Stars Born. That's a good one. All right, Todd, number four. My number four comes from 2015. It is Yimou Zhang's Coming Home. Uh, So it's about this guy named Liu who is sent to a labor camp in the Chinese Cultural Revolution, and he escapes and heads back to his wife and child, but his wife has amnesia, so he's sort of having to try to make his way into back into her life because she does not accept who he says he is because uh, he's basically a stranger to her. And so it's kind of a devastating movie to watch because you know it can't end well. But um, it's a movie about, like, I guess, the power of love in a way. It, it, it's almost like if Old Boy wasn't a thriller or something like that. It's in my top 10 of 2015. It's an amazing movie. Imogen is the, the best at the, uh, the period drama romantic movies and... It's an experience that stuck with me for a long time. So, Fang and Liu uh, in Coming Home. That's what I have with my number four. All right. All right. I've never heard of that movie. Zach, number four. I've never heard of that movie. Yeah, neither neither have I. Bummer. You may have to find it. Sounds interesting. Um, Okay, so keeping on my theme of... um, uh, platonic uh, love stories. My number four movie goes to um, my some of my favorite filmmakers of this decade, of any decade, the Dardenne Brothers. And I'm looking at their, I'm going to select their 2011 film, The Kid with a Bike, 
which is a love story between a 12-year-old boy named Cyril, and he's played by Tomas Dore, and a 30-ish woman named Samantha, and, her, and she's played by Cecile Defense. And the movie is, a, you know, it's a classic Dardenne Brothers story. It takes place in this kind of economically deprived community. And this kid is basically a juvenile delinquent. He lives in this kind of group home setting. And he runs away one day to try to find his dad. But on his way, the, the cops kind of find him and they try to take him back. And then he meets up with this woman and, and he basically grabs onto her for dear life so she can maybe take him with him. And uh, she doesn't. But later they forge this kind of um, almost mother son relationship maybe older sister younger brother relationship where this woman is really captivated by his story and um by kind of how sad and depressing his life is the fact that he's essentially been abandoned by his family and um there's a real heartbreaking exchange that she has with his biological father as well and um so it i don't know i mean the the, the movie is like really sweet it's it's i wouldn't say it's quite as depressing as some of the other dardenne brothers movies it has a little bit of, of faint hope in it in the sense that these are two desperate people who um are very much um needed by one another for fulfillment but a non a non-sexual fulfillment obviously and i would totally call this a love story it's about the love that grows between these two people that have deep emotional wounds and scars in their lives and uh it's a pretty shitty economically deprived community out there so why not you know bundle up and get on a bike and enjoy each other's company like they do in the kid in the bike great dardenne brothers movie well there you go it is a great movie it, it is it's one of their best movies it, it it it's not their best movie of the decade but it's a fantastic movie I, I guess I guess just number four was the uh, was the token uh, foreign film spot on everybody's list except for mine. We'll see. Um, you, okay, you may have one coming up. I don't know. I, I, you, you, I may. <laughs> we'll have to see. Uh, num actually number three on my list. Uh, no, I'm not gonna say that. Number three on my list is uh, from 2017. It's a. Uh, it's actually the first film that popped in my head when I thought about love stories from the last decade, and it is The Big Sick. Uh, written by Kumail Nanjiani, starring Kumail Nanjiani, telling the real life story of how he fell in love with his wife. Um, Emily, who else, who co-wrote this with him, uh, in the movie, it's played by Zoe Kazan. Uh, then you also have, uh, Ray Romano and Holly Hunter playing her parents, and it's a story of how he falls in love with this woman, and then she ends up deathly ill, and, uh, and him having to, uh, to go through that, uh, and it is, it, it's like, it's my rom-com on this list, because it is really funny, mainly because Kumail's playing himself as a stand-up comedian, and... And he's just, he's just funny. And it's got one of my favorite jokes of the of the last decade, when uh, Ray Romano asks Kumail about nine eleven. It's just, it's just awesome. So, uh, but it's all it, the the love story is very sweet and uh, and heartfelt uh, through the comedy as well. So yeah, number three on my list, The Big Sick. Yeah, if it was just romantic Pro comedies, that absolutely would be on my list. And probably if if uh, if you guys were predicting my list, potentially you would have nailed the fact that that would have been on it. All three of them, yes. Yes. <laughs> All right, Todd, number three. Uh, my number three is the 2013 movie, uh, The Spectacular Now, which is the love story of Sutter and Amy. is directed by James Ponsoldt, who is kind of a great at making these 
types of movies, uh, mostly about alcoholics. Like, Smashed almost made my list as well, but that is more about marriage than it is about love, I guess. But Sutter is this high school senior who is an alcoholic, and he's a partier, and he breaks up with his girlfriend, and he meets Amy, who's this, like, shy girl, and he, like, he kind of accidentally hits it off with her, but Sutter's really set in his ways, so he, like, is threatened with losing his job, but he won't because he can't, he doesn't want to stop drinking, and it, so, it, but it starts this, like, up-and-down relationship with Amy. It's basically the high school version of Days and Wine and Roses, but, it, but they're, like, less despicable, so you kind of want to root for them. It's, like, a special movie, and it is, uh, one that is probably the first one I actually thought of, and it's also gotten just amazing supporting cast of Todd actors like Kyle Chandler, Jennifer Jason Lee, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, and Bob Odenkirk. So, uh, Dude. That, that makes it even better. It's got Brie Larson in there as well as his, I think, as his sister. Uh, it's a great movie, and uh, yeah, it, it, yeah, probably the first one I thought of. The Spectacular Now, number three. I've never seen The Spectacular Now. Wow. I know, I think I almost made that you watch that at one point. You probably, probably. should watch it. Yeah, I have a feeling it might be coming if you beat me today. Could All right, be. Zach, number three. Okay, number three for me is, um, going with my platonic love story theme, is a movie that was in my top 25 of the decade, um, but I think it's it's a really sweet movie, um, and that is Sh- uh, Sean Baker's Tangerine, which shows the platonic love between uh, these two uh, trans uh, transgender characters played by Kitana Kiki Rodriguez and Maya Taylor. Their names are Cindy and Alexandra. And uh, it's basically a look at 24 hours in their lives on Christmas Eve in Los Angeles and in the Hollywood district. They hang out at this place called Donut Time. And uh, Cindy finds out that uh, her boyfriend Chester is cheating on her. And they try to confront him. And in the process, they come across these kind of colorful characters along the way. Um, We see the trans community in a lot of vibrancy, but not in a patronizing way at all or a discriminatory way. Um, There's a scene where... um, Cindy is performing. It's Alexander, by the way, who got cheated on, not Cindy. Cindy we see Cindy performing um, a, uh, a concert um, at a restaurant, and no one is there, but Alexandra shows up for her, which is, I think, a great kind of loving thing to do if you're, if you're a friend of someone. Um, and, you know, um, as you watch the movie, you see that it's really, I mean, it is a groundbreaking movie in terms of treating trans characters in an authentic and honest way, but it's also very much a movie about friendship and the kind of sacrifices you make for, for one another, especially if you're in a marginalized community like these characters are. Um, it's a really funny movie, some great dialogue in it, some great acting in it. Uh, Sean Baker, one of the great talents of the 2010s. Um, and I think it's more of a love story than it is a buddy movie. A platonic love story, but definitely the love between two friends. All right. All right. Haven't seen Tangerine either. In fact, on your guys' list so far, Phantom Thread is the only movie I've seen. Ouch. Yeah, I know. All right, number two on my list is probably the... This is the one where I stretch the uh, the concept of love story. Well, I, I interpret it a little differently in this one because um, I mean, love is, a love story doesn't just have to be a romantic love story. Like Zach's doing platonic relationships. This is a, a familial love story, and one of the greatest uh, um, stories that talks about love between uh, between people of the last decade, and that is 2019's The Farewell. Um, and uh, and this look at uh, how this family just wraps this... You know, Aquafina plays uh, plays this character whose grandmother is dying of cancer. 
and they choose to not tell her so she can live out the remaining days of her life uh, carefree without having to worry about the sickness that is that is inside her um, and and what you get out of it is this amazing showing of love for uh, for Nai Nai played by uh, Zhao Xu Zhen um, just it's just an absolutely brilliant story beautiful story and I, I think you'd be lying to yourself if you didn't call it a love story. I mean, because that's what it is. It's a love story between uh, of this family for this woman, and that's completely why they're doing it. And and uh, yeah, just great, great movie. So that's number two on my list: The Farewell. I like it. Well, I'll right. take it a different gear. I'm going with 2013's Her. Which is the story of Theodore, who falls in love with his operating system. Uh, he is a awkward guy who gets divorced and starts talking to his operating system, which is supposed to be like phone sex. But he like gets charmed by uh, Scarlett Johansson's sultry voice and his interest in him. And it's it's sort of about the desperation of somebody who needs companionship and how naive you get when you get in love because uh, he is just delirious and uh, it's an amazing movie to watch. Spike Jones is one of our absolute treasures in film and he really needs to make more movies. Her is an unconventional love story but it, it absolutely should be at the near the top of anyone's list of the 2010s love stories. That's a good choice. It's a good choice. Thanks. Alright, Zach, number two. Okay, my number two film is my favorite Japanese film of this decade, and that is Hirokazu Koreeda's 2013 film, Like Father, Like Son. And this is a movie that, on the surface, sounds kind of like it's a uh, weepy melodrama. It's about uh, these two families who discover that uh, they were happened to be in the hospital at the same night that the mothers were giving birth, and uh, magically, well, not magically, but their uh, babies were exchanged. So... The movie flashes forward about 12 or 13 years, and um, we discover that, well, these these families now discover that they actually have their the other family's biological child. And what's interesting about the movie is that um, Creator shows that there are some very strong economic and cultural differences between these families. One family is very, like, what we would say bougie and kind of rich and cultured and civilized. And so um, the other family is more on the lower end of the economic spectrum. And they uh, are much more kind of friendly and they are more of a fun family. They laugh a lot. The father has a lot of, like, um, physical body humor in the movie, which is really funny. And so the reason why I would put this on my list is that when they discover that these babies were switched at birth, they really have to kind of ask themselves, what does love mean? Is love basically just a biological connection with someone that you've spawned? Or is it a, a connection with someone that you've spent time with? I mean, it's kind of like the eternal nature versus nurture question. And Corey Ida is a great philosopher uh, on film. This is kind of a heartbreaking movie because um, on the one hand, these characters realize that they're not raising their biological kids, but the love that they have for these kids kind of resists any of the kind of cultural differences uh, that these two families have. The, the two families, especially 
essentially the two patriarchs don't even really like each other over the course of the movie. So there is a sort of a clash and conflict. But I think, you know, Todd said this is the movies about love or love stories. I mean, this is a movie that really questions what the meaning of the word love is in a way that I can't really think of any other movie this decade doing. Questioning whether love is just a biological reaction or whether it's something that's really based on nurturing um, and the kind of environmental factors that uh, you find yourself in. So I love Coriata's work. This is a really underrated movie um, that's pretty heartbreaking, but also an honest account of um, questioning what, what love really means. I have right. not actually seen that one. Yeah, Neither I, have I, but I don't think that surprises anybody. Well, you, you should watch it because I know, um, Todd, I mean, your number one movie of, of 2018 was um, uh, uh, Coriata's film um, Shoplifters, right? Shoplifters. Yeah, so it's it's yeah. it's, it's an it's it's similar in a lot of ways to that movie. Also, a movie very much about love too. All right, moving on to number one. Uh, like I said, I I had a really good solid top five, but I really didn't like any of them for number one. And this is the one I settled on. Um, and in some ways, you could say that it's the least love story love story of them. But I think you'd be hard pressed to try and argue that it isn't a love story. Uh, it is also from 2019, and it is Marriage Story. Um, Adam Driver, Scarlett Johansson, and their story of their messy divorce. Well, it ends up being a messy divorce and uh, fighting for custody of their son. Um, this is this is a story of, I mean, love is messy. And, and you can tell at the beginning of this that they, when they decide that this is the direction they're going to go, that... Um, you can tell they still love each other. They just can't be together anymore. Um, but then the the just the politics and bureaucracy of trying to get a divorce ends up making this just a nasty fight um, that none of them wanted because they still love and respect each other so much. Um, it, it shows it shows how how love sometimes ends up looking differently um, and. And you see how that plays out throughout this movie. You see how love can pull out the worst in people at times, and you see that play out as well. Um, it it's a it's a messy love, but it at the end of this movie, I think you can still say that these two characters definitely um, have a deep sense of love for each other, um, even though they are not together anymore. So uh, so yeah, number one on my list. It, it's it's one that has stuck with me since I first saw it, Marriage Story. I like it. Second Scarlett Johansson movie mentioned. Yeah, yeah, it is. You're right. Okay. Todd, number one. All right. You guys aren't going to be surprised by my number one. It is Carol from 2015. The Clearly the best movie of 2015. And Todd Haynes is a genius, and he is the go-to guy for these forbidden love stories. Um, it's about... This girl named Therese who works in a department store, and C Carol is Kate Blanchett. She leaves behind her gloves. She's just, like imposing woman and uh, elegant woman, and she ends up inviting her to lunch for thanking her for giving her gloves back. And it ends up being this like rapturous romantic movie, and the two leads are amazing. And it's uh, it's complicated because it, it takes place in 1952, so it's definitely. Uh, like, uh, the lesbian romance is scandalous, and, uh, she, uh, Carol's going through a divorce, and she has kids, and it, there's very little levity in the movie, but it is a gorgeously mounted romance drama, and 
It, I mean, it, I, it was a hyped-up movie for me before I saw it, and uh, it exceeded beyond expectations. And it was it was the only one that really could be number one for me when I actually thought about it. That is not surprising. But again, it's, an, it's a film that I just didn't really get or care for. I know. <laughs> I really I liked realized it. that when I put Phantom Thread on there, too. I was like, yeah, Terry's not going to dig my list, but that's okay. <laughs> I think the first hour of Carol is absolutely perfect, on par with anything Todd Haynes has done. I don't think the second half quite reaches that level of the first half, but when you do see the kind of uh, passion that is ignited between those two characters, it is pretty magical watching. Agreed. It's also my second Kyle Chandler movie, which I didn't actually think about until just now. I probably should rewatch Carol again, but in my mind, Carol is like on par with Notes on a Scandal as bad Kate Blanchett love stories. That Ouch. is slap in the face, man. There are no cats in this movie <laughs> that I can remember. Bad, bad Kate Blanchett lesbian love stories. Carol, Notes on a Scandal. You're welcome. Wow. Brutal. All right, Zach, number one. <laughs> okay, uh, my number one movie is uh, from 2012, and it is a French movie directed by Ursula Meyer, and it is called Sister. And the French title is L'Enfant d'un Hot, or something like that. And uh, it's a love story between a brother and sister. Hey, believe it or not, it, right? Is, is the, or something like that, a <laughs> parenthetical part of the title, or is it, or is it maybe an ellipsis? Um, no, it's the French, it's, it's the French title. It is kind of funny you mention that, though, because this movie is a bitch to find on IMDb. Like, I cannot, if I type in sister, it never comes up as sister. So, I can I can never remember the French title, so I have to type in Leah Sadieu, who, who, you know, this was one of her more famous early roles uh, before Blue is the Warmest Color. And that's how I get to this movie. Otherwise, I, I can never find this movie on IMDb. Um, anyway, as the title suggests... Uh, Sorry, no, I derailed you. I that, was just giving you crap. No, it's okay. I'm kind, I'm kind of glad. I like that sort of digression a little bit because it is a hard movie to find imdb needs to get better at its algorithms for french movies with english uh titles um yeah so sister tells the story of a brother and sister uh louise played by leah sadieu and uh, simone played by casey Mottet klein and um they live in the french alps and uh, uh the sister uh louise is i think around maybe 15 or 16 the brother simone is about 10 or 11 and um they basically live on their own their parents have abandoned them and the only way they can support themselves in this very again affluent uh, rich uh, community of the swiss alps is for simone the younger brother to go up to the alps and basically steal rich white people's skis and so he steals the skis and then he pawns them for some money and that's how he's able to support a life with him and his sister um, um, the, the the sister character Leah Sadieu, she's just sort of I, I don't you know she's not I don't know she, she, you would call her lazy but she's just not she's not quite as as adept at tr at finding work as he is, and so I call this a love story because. Again, you uh, you don't. It, it's it's a love that it questions whether you know true love exists between people who just happen to be related, or is it two people who find a deep bond with one another? And I think the movie really questions. It's it, it, well, especially the character of Simone starts to question his kind of blind adoration for his his sister, and Louise's love for her brother is is a different love too. And it, again, it, these characters are really complex, and the love is kind of questioned over the course of the movie. Um, but they make a great team and they make a great pair and the movie's really kind of fascinating in the way that um, it shows the ups and downs of their relationship it has also maybe the most heartbreaking single scene of the decade which is when Simone the younger brother has 
uh, cashed in some money for skis and he has some money and all he wants to do is snuggle with his sister but she refuses to to cuddle with him at all so he actually pays her to cuddle with him I mean that that is a, a really kind of heartbreaking tragic scene in a way but again very much about the, the topic of love anyway um, maybe you know you notice a lot of foreign films on my list I think foreign films get uh, a more philosophical look at what love is and what love isn't more than American movies do and um, this is absolutely a movie about uh, questioning what love is and it's it's one of the more underrated movies of this decade i i am shocked that uh leah sedu was mentioned in this list and not for blue is the warmest color yeah that that was definitely the uh underdog <laughs> yeah <laughs> that is a love story too like i i would have i would have expected like specter before <laughs> before anything else but blue okay. is the warmest color is definitely not platonic right that's true, true. Which, which would have fit the list better than your list but sister's a better movie <laughs> all right well let's move on to some honorable mentions i've got five here that uh i want to mention um begin again is a is a great love story um Keira knightley john carney's follow-up to uh to once um another one looking at uh familial love story um i don't know if you can find a better um sibling bond than frozen from this last decade uh a film that i loved when i watched it but i need to watch it again because i don't really remember a whole lot about it but it was a great love story is broke the broken circle breakdown uh that was a really great movie that was nominated for best foreign film at the oscars and then two uh the two best picture winners that i think qualify for this list that uh i really enjoyed were the artist in the shape of water shape of water is a good one yeah Alright, Todd, uh, honorable mention. So, I went with a movie you guys hate, which is Longshot, uh, of course. Um, <laughs> then I have 2017's Thelma, which is like a supernatural thriller romance by Joaquin Trier. Um, then I have a couple uh, Love Triangles, Tuesday After Christmas, which is a Romanian movie from 2011, and I'll See You in My Dreams. I also have Call Me By Your Name and The Blue Is the Warmest Color. And the other one that I wanted to mention, and I was shocked that it actually had more than a thousand votes, or I would have had it on our last list as well, which it, which is the 2010 movie Mercy, which is uh, written and starring Scott Kahn. It's about like a romance writer who falls in love with his uh, biggest critic, and it's like a really interesting movie. And I, I think Scott Kahn's a actually a good filmmaker, but uh, he's been like stuck in network TV hell for the last decade, so he hasn't really made another movie. But uh, yeah. So Mercy is a movie you should definitely check out if you haven't. There's only like 1,200 votes on IMDb. All right. Zach, honorable mention. Okay, um, so I, I could have mentioned three movies that were on my top ten list of the decade. Those were Brooklyn, Blue Valentine, and Leave No Trace. Um, but I just decided to keep those off. Um, I, I do have a few more conventional sort of love stories. Um, I, uh, enough said. Um, Cold War, which hasn't been mentioned. Um, Pariah, Call Me By Your Name. I agree with Todd. Flipped. The Kids Are All Right. Uh, this is 40. I also said the Zoe Kazan segment from um, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And then if I had to go super conventional <laughs> for um, for love story, like if we're actually talking about a romantic relationship, then my number one movie of the decade would have probably been Goodbye First Love, the Mia Hansen love movie. Because, first of all, the, the love appears both in the title of the movie and it's the director's name, Mia Hansen Love. So, yes, uh, there's that. And, of course, Crazy Stupid Love, which also has love in its name. 
That 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 was in my my honorable mention to the honorable mention list. But who is the love story about in Crazy Stupid Love? Is it like the third and fourth lead characters? And because otherwise, it's not really a love story. There's like four There's love stories like, going yeah, on. Yeah, everyone's in love with someone else in that movie. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, now it's time for uh, for our game. Guessing Adam Daly's list. Adam is our our fourth uh, almost sideways contributor, and we always try to see who can uh, who can pick his brain and guess his list the best. Uh, I think I've got his list nailed. I mean, I've got like the five most Adam love stories you could come up with from the last decade. So, I think I got this. We'll see. Okay, here's my list. Number five, Silver Linings Playbook. Number four, Coco. I, that's a love story. Number three, her. Number two, Blue Valentine. Number one, Call Me by Your Name. All right, I have number five, Moonrise Kingdom, but I'll probably say Moonshine Kingdom, as of an inside joke. Uh, number four, <laughs> I have some like animated Japanese movie called Your Name that I know he loves. Number three, I have Call Me by Your Name. Number two, Blue Valentine, and number one, Moonlight. Okay. Zach? Okay, I have The Danish Girl at number five, Mad Max Fury Road, number four, A Star is Born, number three, Lady Bird, number two, and number one, Call Me By Your Name. Okay, all right. So, let's see here. His list, he says, my main criteria was not to have any movies on this list that I had in my best of the decade or any best of the 2010s list thus far. Well, well I mean, uh... Well, that, Dude, that is seriously, of my list. that excludes Blue Valentine, Call Me By Your Name, Trainwreck, Premature, and Manchester by the Sea. <sighs> Adam, you disappoint me. Um, and one that I should have watched before this list was Blue is the Warmest Color. He actually owns the Criterion for it, but he hasn't watched it yet. All right, well, thanks for screwing me over, Adam. All right, honorable mentions, Easy A, Crazy Stupid Love, Silver Linings Playbook, Mwah! Uh, beyond, beyond. I think he means before midnight, but he said beyond midnight. Um, <laughs> love Simon. Like a very different movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it reminds me of a of a quote from How I Met Your Mother: "Nothing good happens after two a.m. Beyond midnight." Yeah. Um, love Simon, disobedience, and marriage story. Okay, that was his honorable mention. Here's his list. Number five, Beyond the Lights from 2014, a beautiful and underseen film about uh, with amazing music. The relationship between Noni and Kaz isn't just romantic, but also an inspiring one. Seeing Noni be on the edge of a cliff more ways than one to finding the courage to be the artist she was meant to be is amazing. Also, low-key grateful by Rita Ora should have won the Best Song Oscar. Number four, If Beale Street Could Talk from 2018. One that would be on my list regardless of what has been happening in the world today. The love that uh, Tish has for her husband is amazing. She fights for her husband's innocence when he is falsely imprisoned. A powerful and relevant story and relationship. Number three, Brooklyn. I love how this film not only has one romantic relationship but four. Saoirse Ronan's character with Elle Lacey has to choose between two men and two countries. It's an amazing story of following your heart and coming of age. I would say easily Ronan's best role to date. Number two. Hey, I'm going to get one. Her. One of the more unique love stories of the decade. A man falls in love with an operating system. Perfect blend of romance and science fiction. Love how it explores the nature of love and the ways technology isolates and connects us all. 
And number one. Damn it, Todd. Your name, 2016. <laughs> <sighs> one that so, should have been on my best of the decade list. Watch this a week after that episode dropped. I immediately put this film as my number one of 2016. Honestly, could be the best animated film I've ever watched. There's so much more than just a love story here. There's body swapping, time jumps, little bit of a disaster film, and coming of age all wrapped into this film. I would love to hear you all review this film. This should be top ten of the decade for me, but watched it too late. <sighs> well, I had that number four, so that... <laughs> where did you have your... Uh, where'd you have I her? had her number three. And he had it too. And it ended up number two. Her was my number two. <laughs> But you, was, you also had an honorable mention right too, so yeah, you, I, you you definitely win, I guess. Do I win this? Well, I mean, I... Not I only... to mention that two of my other ones were in his excluded list. So Yeah, well, same here. But I think it, it, you, Todd gets weight because he got the number one film, though. But I... He got, it, he got the number one. Doesn't that... Does, yeah. I mean, isn't this a, more of a weighted system? I mean... I, I uh, so Todd got the number one, but it was his number four. I got the number two. It was my number three and an honorable mention. Zach, you're the one that's not in this fight. Who won? I think I should win. Clearly. <laughs> that that's that's the option that doesn't work. <laughs> who who won this one? Me or Todd? Um, I think maybe you should win, Terry, because Todd came up with this power ranking and. Uh... You know, maybe someone else should come up with power ranking next time. Okay, I'll, I'll go with that. Your name, really, Todd? Really? I know he loved it. I've never seen it, but uh, I only put it on there really because I had "Call Me by Your Name" already on there. I was like, so I mean, that makes sense. Your name and just, "Call Me by Your Name." Yeah, it just took the last two words of it. <laughs> that 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 would have been something he would have done. All right, well, I guess I win. <sighs> I was nervous there when I saw that pop up as his number one. I, I'm okay. surprised he didn't say Moonlight. I, that, that was a total Adam number one pick. I, I thought if he had gone unconventional love story, Coco definitely would have been on his list. I mean, love story of a father and son, or father and daughter. That, that totally would have been on there. All right, okay. well, now Terry has 14 points, Zach has 12 and a half, and I am in the lead with 20. And I get to come up with our next power ranking. Okay. Sounds good. Okay. Ugh. That, that just makes me mad, Adam. you got to let us know that before we predict your list, that you're going to exclude <laughs> all the films that we predicted. Well, he, All right. he even asked me, he's like, so this is excluding movies on our top 25 of the decade, right? And I was like, I'm not making that distinction. He said, okay, cool. <laughs> so I assumed that they were, I mean, I was still making them fair game, but uh, apparently he took that as, you know, like, oh, I'm going to make my own rules. Kind of like Zach. It would be, be impossible to predict Zach at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, what, Zach had two, or no, three foreign films on his list? Yeah. Sounds it, right. This was Zach. This was the most Zach list we've had in like six months. Right, why is it the most Zach list? This is the most Todd list. Phantom Thread, Her, Spectacular, Now, Carol. Like, I think we're showing no, our true about, colors. You had three foreign films on your list. <laughs> well, I had a foreign film too, though that Zach hasn't seen, which was surprising. Never heard of. 
It's impressive. <clears throat> and I had five mainstream, you know, wide releases that everybody saw. The, the, yeah, the, this really showed our true colors. Here. It did. It, it it was it was a list of films about love stories that showed really our love of what films we love. That was deep. There you go. I just I just brought it all the way around there. All right, we're moving on. Trivia time. Are you ready? Well, let's hope so. Oh, I forgot about this. John Boyd is a slap in the face. This is going downhill quick. Trivia. Uh, before we get into our game uh, that Zach is hosting, I won last time, but Zach had a good idea and frankly was sick of losing and not being able to run trivia. So I let him steal the, the trivia game for this time. So Todd and I are going to be facing off. But first, Todd and Zach have to report on a couple movies they watched. Uh, Todd, you're first. Okay, I had the 2010 Best Foreign Language Film nominee from Algeria called Outside the Law by Rashid Bouchareb. Um, it's about the Algerian War and the Satif Massacre, which I was not exactly familiar of going in. It's about three brothers who go separate ways after losing their home in, like, the first scene. One of them becomes, like, a wise guy. One of them becomes, like, the leader of the resistance, and the other, like, Janky just joins the military. It's sort of a sequel, I guess, in in ways I've seen it labeled as a sequel to Days of Glory, which was also nominated for Best Foreign Film, a movie from 2016 that I loved, but that's just because probably it's the same director and a lot of the same actors. It's a, it's got the, the Outside the Law has this, like, really broad scope. It's like, I saw it for, compared to The Godfather Part 2, which I can kind of see. It's got this, like, sweeping epic feel, but it's a little hard to get into the actual war aspect of it as much as it is the domestic scenes it it, it does feel bloated and it does drag because because it is so like big and and but but it and beautiful to look at but at the same time it, it doesn't really have that much plot underlying it it was a pretty loaded year in 2010 for foreign films i'm not really sure how it got nominated but it's it's a different movie and i it's almost worth watching it's a sort of a longer movie as well it's uh i give it two and a half stars I'm not even sure what Terry thinks of this movie. I don't remember him reviewing it, but apparently he did on the podcast. What, what did you think, Terry? I did. I gave it two stars. Um, it, it's, I, I thought, honestly, it's very similar to Wasp Network in that it's a piece of history that I wasn't really familiar with, but it's also a very disjointed story. Um, but I, it, it had me a lot less engaged than uh, Wasp Network did. Um yeah, I, I love the the one that just like becomes the like underground uh, like player and and schemer and like he's basically the Algerian version of a guy from Guys and Dolls. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can see. It. He uh, yeah, uh, he he was my favorite character. But all three brothers, I think, were really interesting. I I agree with you. It's it's almost worth the watch, and this is why I was recommending it. One because it was a movie I knew you hadn't seen. But also, it's it's worth a watch because I thought it was a really interesting story and an interesting movie. And honestly, how often do you see an Algerian film? Um, True. But it, it was so disjointed and so broken up throughout the timelines and stuff that it, it was really hard to get into. Yeah. So you recommend me a two-star movie. That That's, uh, that's comforting, Terry. Dude. I found a movie that I've seen that you haven't. You've seen like four times as many films as I have, so it's kind of hard to find. 
Alright. <laughs> Alright. Zach, on the other hand, watched a classic that was on his list of shame for a long time. Zach, tell us what you watched and what you thought. Yes, I watched the very obscure, little seen, hard to find 80s movie called Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um, directed by John Hughes. I had not seen it. I'd gone, you know, a good 15, 20 years boastful, you know, boasting, hey, I haven't seen Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Now, I don't know what famous movie I haven't seen that I can brag that I haven't seen. Um, <sighs> I texted Todd while watching this movie, probably mistakenly, because Todd's a fan of this movie. I was not a fan of this movie. I, this, this, came up, this movie came up because of our conversation of Clueless last week, and I completely reject the notion that this movie has any similarities to Clueless outside of being a high school movie with a character who talks to the audience, and a scene that involves the painter Monet. I, we're, we're, what are the comparisons? There's no comparisons. Um, I guess they're driving in a convertible on a highway at a certain point, too. That's, that's kind of familiar, too. Anyway, um, you know, people grew up with this movie, so I, I, I'm going to try to respect that, but I just could never get into this movie. I mean, I, I, I thought, you know, Todd said one of his criticisms of Clueless is that it went way too fast. This movie was, like, painfully slow. Um, I feel like if it was remade today, the, the director would have a lot more kind of visual flair with it. I mean, it takes 10 minutes to get Ferris's friend Cameron out of bed and into his car. Like, that takes so long. It's painful. I also question why... <laughs> I question why Ferris would ever want to skip school period because I gotta say, I found Ben Stein's lecture on Great Depression economics kind of interesting. Like, I would have listened to, I, I wanna know more about that kind of stuff. And frankly, like, what's the big deal if you go to school? Everyone is just nodding off in Ben Stein's class. Like, is it really that hard to get your ass out of bed and just sleep through the day at school? Like, who really cares? Baby from um, uh, Dirty Dancing is really miscast as a sister, and I don't really understand why she has so much animosity for Ferris, and yet at the end of the movie pulls a 180 inexplicably out of nowhere after she makes out with charlie sheen randomly and defends him um uh the principal has this vendetta for ferris bueller that is like so it's like out of a, a freaking silent movie or something like it is just comically exaggerated it undercuts any sort of emotional resonance that you would have with this story at all and this movie really breaks uh two rules uh, of two things that i find incredibly unfunny that most people find funny which is a big dance sequence and a big lip sync sequence and it's all at once i like is that funny is lip syncing really funny like i don't get it i've never seen the appeal of it i didn't find that sequence really funny at all. I didn't understand why everyone was becoming more and more aware that Ferris got sick so much so that at Wiggly Field it was on the sign and then it made the newspaper. Like, I... I, I didn't get that. It was it was strange. The MVP of this movie is Charlie Sheen because I was like, what the hell is he doing in this movie? Um, it's a two-star movie because I came in knowing that I wouldn't like this movie. So I'm not the right audience for it. I respect people that, that, that like it, I guess. Um, I, I'm not a John Hughes fan. Um, it was not an enjoyable movie to watch. I have, I have three questions for you. Uh, did you watch it with your wife? Had she seen it before, and what does she think of it? Uh, she's, she's seen it before. I think she likes it a little bit more than I do, but uh, neither of us are the world's biggest fans of it. So, uh, you know, it wasn't the right environment to, to, to watch it in. But like I said, I'm not a huge John Hughes fan. I love Home Alone, and there was a little bit of Home Alone in this movie. This movie's like The Breakfast Club meets Home Alone. You can certainly see that. But, uh, yeah, it just it's kind of dated, and it's kind of slow. And the MVP of this movie, uh, Charlie Sheen, also co-MVP, Mia Sarah. Man, I, I don't know why she didn't have a career after this movie. She's like really hot and um yeah that's all i really have to say 
Can you see how uh, how Ferris Bueller could grow up to be Matthew Broderick's character and you can count on me? I mean, that would be really depressing. Mo- you know, growing up in this like <laughs> affluent northern Chicago suburb and then moving somewhere in the middle of New York, becoming a low-grade bank uh, manager, like that's kind of depressing. It's it's like it's like Lester Burnham level of uh, of depravity there. I don't see how you can't see the similarities with Clueless. Like the the scene where she's like, my my best friend's sister's boyfriend, blah blah blah. I saw Ferris pass out at Thirty One Flavors last night. Is exactly the same scene as when Cher is like, rattling off like what like where that person was that day or whatever. I don't know. Like there are a lot of scenes that they they like deliberately stole from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and they're both like similarly like narcissistic and like have way too much technology on their hands and like i mean every, everything becomes like big show when they're at school and that was like, like another like, thing like, there, there's this, definitely a level of of uh, inmates running the asylum there too this yeah. movie's like it's like a movie version of a rube goldberg machine like ferris must have spent weeks <laughs> planning for his one day off like give me a break like how long does it take? why not just you know enjoy the weekend while you have it you know that was just a day in ferris's life i think he just woke up that day being like i don't really feel like going to school let's do something fun i don't think that was like he had a whole bunch of plans like he didn't have anything planned they just drove into the city he knew his best friend was already sick so he's like hey screw it like (laughs) cameron's sick like wait he's not going to school i'm not going to school either let's go do something the better conspiracy The better conspiracy theory is that Cameron became a tourist in L.A. on an L.A. city bus that Sandra Bullock was on, and that had to go over 50 miles an hour. That's a better conspiracy theory. Uh, I love the fact that they're in the middle of Chicago, and uh, the entire time Cameron wears a Detroit Red Wings Gordie Howe jersey. Yeah, I was wondering that, too. Like, that didn't make any sense. (laughs) (sighs) Uh, My favorite line from that movie is... uh, is when the principal is at the, the like, arcade, and he asks the, the guy behind the counter, um, uh, what's the score? Zero, zero. Who's winning? It's a baseball game. Uh, the Bears. <laughs> wasn't it, wasn't that a bar? No, it was, it was the place where he, like, snuck up on the one guy, girl that oh, looked yeah. like Ferris from behind, and at the arcade machine. Yeah. I think it was, like, a pizza parlor. In Chicago, it was probably a pizza parlor. All right, well, that's disappointing, but... Not surprising. I, I think that's what was expected. Yeah, disappointing, but not surprising. That's a great way of putting it. All right, well, it's time for this trivia game. Zach, you're, you're, you're pulling out some technology on us and doing something unprecedented. What are we doing here? Yeah, we're en- entering a whole new level of... of uh, it's like Nick, Nick, Nick Cage said in his Oscar speech. This is the new, the new wave of acting right here. Um, okay, so... This is going to be an audio, there's an audio component to this trivia, and uh, we're going to start with Todd. So I'm going to ask Terry to take off his headphones, and we will give you a thumbs up when uh, you're welcome to come back. Okay. Okay. So, Todd, um, the audio component to this is I have 10 movie scores that won best score at the Oscars and I'm going to play about a 10 second clip from each of them and I want you to see if you can identify what Oscar winning score they are from now the trick is I have to hold my iPad kind of up to my microphone so it might be a little interesting if you need me to play it again I will so let's let's start with this first one
I'm going to say... Sounds something super epic. I'm going to say Dances with Wolves. Dances with Wolves is correct. Good job. Okay. All right. Wow. Here's number... Here's number two. Um, I'm going to say that's like uh, Julia. Uh, no, that is not Julia. That is The Shape of Water. Already mentioned earlier on this podcast. Wow. Okay. I can see that. Number three. Alright, I mean, I know it. Uh... Like uh, Beauty and the Beast? Uh, no, not Beauty and the Beast. Uh, it is Lawrence of Arabia. Mm. <laughs> okay. Not doing so hot, but there's time to recover. Okay, number four. on like every movie trailer ever made um man i don't know <laughs> i'm just gonna i don't know what that one is you don't even have a guess um pat <laughs> pat Patton. oh Patton. <laughs> uh, no it is shakespeare in love okay. all right next one sounds so playful <laughs> would you like to hear it again no um <laughs> pinocchio good guess but no it is the artist oh okay. here okay. we go next see a lot of these movies i've only seen like one time <laughs> okay The English Patient. Uh, no, it is The Best Years of Our Lives. Okay, all I'm right. just gonna give I'm just gonna give you a hint because you're not doing so hot. These are all Best Picture winners. I was I was on the fence whether I was gonna say that or not. But oh, okay. So these are Best Score winners that also happen to win Best Picture. Maybe that'll help you out a little bit. Okay, here's the next one. Gladiator? No, it is the English patient. Okay, three more. <laughs> uh, 
West Side Story? No, this th- it was The Last Emperor. Wow. Next. Yeah, I wouldn't have gotten that. Think uh, older on this one. Um, all about Eve. Close. One year off. Uh, it was American in Paris. And then last one. Personally one, of, personally, one of my favorite scores of the decade. Uh, no, not Forrest Gump. The answer is Out of Africa. Okay, Todd. Of that decade of the eight. <laughs> what? <laughs> personally, one of your favorite scores of that decade? <laughs> no, all, all, right, all time. You said, all that, right. you said the decade. <laughs> uh, okay, so. Um, before, before we start, I just want to put on the record that before we started this podcast... We had to do an audio check to make sure that we were going to be able to hear the audio. So Zach just picked, you know, the first thing that popped up on his iPad to play for us, mm. which was Single Ladies by Beyonce. I just I just had to put that on the record that that's his default. Okay, you know, in, ahead, in words of Kanye, it was one of the greatest music videos of all time. Um, okay, so uh, <laughs> this category, th- there's good news and there's bad news, Terry. Uh, the, the bad news is that this is a pretty tough category, apparently, tougher than I realized. But the good news is Todd only got one right. So if you can get more than one right, you are the winner. So uh, the category is Oscar-winning scores. And I'm going to play a snippet from an Oscar-winning score, and you have to identify what film it is. Um, I'm going to put... So here is the first one. Let me know if you can't hear it. I don't mind playing it uh, multiple times. So here we go is the first one. Okay, do do we get any parameters or anything, or just like Oscars in general? Um, any 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 decades, any year? I'm just it's it's just just Oscar winning. This scores. is spanning the gamut of Oscar. Just okay. Oscar winning scores. Yeah. Um, dances with wolves. Dances I don't know. with wolves is correct. <laughs> That's exactly what I said. You both started one for one. Let's see if Terry can improve on Todd's performance with this next one. Shape of Water. The Shape of Water is correct. Nicely done. Terry is officially the winner, but let's see how far we can go. Here's I mean, the... you're kind of playing into my, into my hand here by doing music, but okay. Number three. Oh, Lawrence of Arabia. That is correct. That's like one of the most iconic scores of all time. No, it's not. 
<laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> I think Todd. The, 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 what, what if the top like a thousand maybe scores? Is that what you're saying? Oh no, okay, no. That, can we that's just, like a top Todd usually wins trivia, so I think we should just take this moment to shit on him a little bit. I don't bit. know what you listen to. Okay, keep going. Okay, um, Todd said. By the way, that was Beauty and the Beast. Okay. <laughs> See, like I said, you're playing into my hand here. You're doing—I mean, music's my thing. Here's, you haven't okay. seen *Dances with Wolves*, have you? Yes, I have. Oh. All right. Here's the next one. And. I gave Todd a hint on this one. This is like in every single movie trailer ever made, I feel like. I, I, I hear this all the time. I'm, I'm thinking it's like, that sounds like late 80s, early 90s. Gee. Gosh, I don't know. I'm, I don't know. It is Shakespeare in Love. Oh, okay. Was that the one you said Patton for, Todd? I don't know. I, I didn't even want to give an answer. I just spit out an answer. <laughs> okay, Probably. here's the, ne- the next one. Wow. Um... Yeah, I don't know. That one... Yeah, nothing. Is the artist? I said Pinocchio. <laughs> yeah, that's a good guess. Uh, here's the next one. The artist. Okay. Braveheart. No, it is the best years of our lives. Yeah, not gonna get that. <laughs> yeah. That one was a tough one. Alright, let's try this next one. Return of the King? No, that's a good guess, though. Um, it's the English Patient. Ah. Okay, here we go. I feel like I know this. Not gonna come to me. Um... Well, okay, I'm going to give you the hint that I gave Todd midway through. These are all okay. also Best Picture winners that also happen to win Best Score, so maybe that will narrow it down a little oh, bit. Oh, okay. It's okay. You've guessed every Best Picture winner so far. Yeah, I didn't even realize that, but okay. Um, That's because he's not using any iconic scores that won Best Original Score. <laughs> They're except all for picture. Lawrence of Arabia. I think they're yeah, totally more <laughs> iconic than Star Wars or Pan's Labyrinth or any other score yeah. that won Best Picture. Yeah, because those are, those are actually Best Picture winners. Good call, Todd. Hey, yeah. you know what? Um, I would have been able to identify every one of these scores with the exception of the best years of our lives. <laughs> that, I don't know the answer to this one. That, this one was The Last Emperor. 
I feel like that oh, was all yeah, I wasn't over the gonna last get that. Emperor. Okay. I wasn't going to get that. Two more. Nope. An American in Paris. And then, and then, <laughs> I haven't seen that one yet. And then the last one. That was, and, and what I said to Todd, I think it's one of the best scores of all time, not just from the 80s when it came out, uh, but that is Out of Africa by John Barry. So with a score, a whopping score of 3-1, to one, Terry started out 3-0, then missed the next seven. Uh, Terry is the champion of best original score trivia. So we both guessed the same one right. However, I like hardcore new those next two. Like, I knew Shape of Water, I knew Lawrence of Arabia, so, like, I, I feel like this was a pounding. Yes, it was also a cluster f- at the same time. <laughs> yes. Would have had could, a better shot if I would have had well. the uh, parameters beforehand, but, I mean, I still probably wouldn't have gotten more than Terry. Although Terry did already have the parameter in his head already, apparently. <laughs> I didn't, I just, I mean, yeah. Your guesses were entertaining, right. Todd. Well, I win again, so I get a host again, and I get to pick films again, so I gotta try and find another movie Todd hasn't seen that I have. <laughs> <sighs> okay. That's gonna be fun. Let's wrap this up. Quote of the day. Strawberries. Not the cheese. Womack. With a little sex in it. Quote of the day. I gotta go first. Um, I, I had I had a quote set aside that I picked out from Marriage Story, my number one on my love story list, but um, I decided, uh, excuse me, I decided to scrap it for, uh, I, I, I'm trying to decide which Ferris Bueller quote to pick, but I'm having trouble picking, picking one of them. Um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with, uh, this is probably the most Ferris thing that you, like, this wraps up Ferris Bueller. He goes, not that I condone fascism, or any ism for that matter. Isms, in my opinion, are not good. A person should not believe in an ism. He should believe in himself. I quote John Lennon. I don't believe in Beatles. I just believe in me. Good point there. After all, he was the walrus. I could be the walrus. I still have to bum rides off people. So. I like there it. You go. Yes. Well, the other one I was going to go with was, pardon my French, but Cameron is so tight that if you stick a lump of coal up his ass, in two weeks you'd have a diamond. I've also noticed uh, Ferris Bueller a lot like Zach Morris. Yeah, that's a good call. All right, Zach, your quote. Okay, my quote comes from Ingrid Goes West, one of uh, Adam's top 25 movies of the decade, one of the great love stories, platonic maybe love stories of the decade and it is a quote said by the character of taylor sloan played memorably by the other olsen sister elizabeth olsen and she says live in the sunshine swim in the sea drink the wild air ralph waldo emerson that's the quote i like it. it yeah nice nice 
All right, Todd, wrap us up. All right, my quote's going to come from Sideways, but it's also a quote I quoted earlier this week, like yesterday. So at, at work, they were giving out these gift bags for all the uh, employees who were fathers. And so they're like, hey, all the dads come up. We'll take a picture. Todd, you ain't got any kids, right? And so naturally, my reaction was, me? No, no, I just fuck them up. <laughs> <laughs> and that's well what I said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well done well done uh well uh that brings our podcast to a close thank you guys so much for listening and uh make sure you subscribe rate review on itunes and um you can also find us on spotify we'll be back at you next week and to close out the podcast i'm gonna come at you with one more ferris bueller quote you're still here it's over Go home. Go. Have fun watching movies. We'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.